0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review Radio. Here you'll meet some of the amazing authors and filmmakers leading the expansion of the new consciousness and expanding our perception of who we are and what we can be. I'm your host, Miriam Knight, and I am delighted to have on the show today one of the wisest women I know, as well as a dear friend, Dr. Ruth Miller. Ruth has a unique background in academia, applied research, and the ministry— as well as an impressive ability to integrate scientific, spiritual, and cultural perspectives and make complex metaphysical principles and practices accessible to modern audiences. She has degrees in anthropology, cybernetics, environmental studies, and the system sciences. She was a futurist and college professor before being ordained as a New Thought Minister. She now teaches in Unity, Science of Mind, and Unitarian churches, and is an organizational consultant and the research director of the Portal Center for Psyche, Science, and Spirit in Oregon. Ruth Miller, in her spare time, has authored or edited over a dozen books, including 150 Years of Healing, Make the World Go Away, and Unveiling Your Hidden Power. Today, we're going to talk about her latest book, Natural Abundance, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Guide to Prosperity. So hello, Ruth, and
1: welcome. Well, thank you, Miriam. Wow, that was an amazing introduction.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's all true, so you might take that as a compliment. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) First off, I want to thank you. I really want to thank you for reintroducing me to Emerson. I haven't read him since I was in high school or college. And, you know, at the time, I thought Emerson's writing was a real challenge. In fact, I think it was considered rather impenetrable, even in in his own time. And reading his essays in your book now, especially with your interpretations, I just realized how remarkably rich they are and worth the effort. So I'd like you to tell us how you structured this book.
1: Oh, wow. All right. The the goal was to do exactly what you experienced. I'm so happy that you had that experience. That's fabulous. We hoped that uh, by collecting a set of essays that we felt were directly relevant, that's we as me and the publishers, uh, we felt were directly relevant to what people were dealing with today. And by structuring each essay in small topic areas and taking his huge paragraphs you know some of those paragraphs are two pages long mm-hmm. and, and know, some cutting... of the sentences are a half a page <laughs> there is that yeah so taking those and you know whittling them down to more modern sized paragraphs which are usually 3 to 5 sentences um and sentences are usually 10 to 15 words at max so we tried to create small chunks that people could get into and then he had very carefully created this film almost of detail around the gems so people wouldn't uh, just go dra- directly to the gems. And there's some reasoning for that. Um, so we pulled away the film in detail and got to the gems. Mm-hmm. And the idea was these five essays were ones that either people had read in high school or college or seminary or were required to, <laughs> would be <laughs> um and were directly relevant to living a prosperous life in incredibly you know transformational times this is this period of our of the world history you know is unmatched so um by doing all of that and then including his original essays as original as we could get them because most collections are actually highly edited so, we could try to get the most original versions we could in the book as well. So, you have my version up front with some exercises and some summary points, and then his version in the back. So, you can go in and go, Oh, no, I got this bad. Exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, people forget, um, they think of Emerson almost as contemporary, they forget he wrote 150 years ago. Yeah. It's amazing, his understanding of the workings of nature and creation were so ahead of his time. Yeah. He wrote, and I quote, nature is the incarnation of a thought and turns to thought again as ice becomes water and gas. And in many places, he talks about waves and particles, just like in quantum theory. Can you expand upon how he viewed these processes of nature?
1: Well, he understood everything to be fundamentally very 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 simple nature works with two activities he called it motion and rest and when he was talking about motion he was talking about the t- the movement activity the tendency of things to grow and change and in quantum terms today that would be the fermion the tendency to expand to um, you know, move apart and rest the tendency to be still to come together to breathe you know when you breathe you breathe and then there's that moment of rest Mm -hmm. that whole thing so everything is those two motions and then he said it's all one substance that's what's so amazing because that idea that you know there is one fundamental substance underlying and behind all these individual atoms was not really you know Understood in the scientific world world at mm-hmm. that time, and that fundamental substance we today would call the quantum field or the you know whatever the the matrix, you use whatever language you want for that, but it's that interacting field of bosons, the tendency to come together and rest, and fermions, the tendency to go apart and move, in. You know, all their incredible combinations. And he says everything, from the hugest universes down to the smallest atom, are just this.
0: Hmm. He was so focused on connecting with nature. Can you, can you tell us some of the things that nature can teach us about creating a good life?
1: You know, he looked again and again. He said, if you want to know how to live a good life, look at nature. Look at how these two motions, activity and rest, these two, uh, you know, principles, processes, mm-hmm. activity and rest, uh, look at the way that The experience of nature causes us to leave behind what he called our self-important trifles. (laughs) I love that phrase. You know, he invites us to go into the woods or to go into any natural environment and, you know, allow that moment to be, because it's so rich, because there's so much happening, to fill our being and allow... The normal stuff to fall away, you know. He, you know, I understand John Muir's uh, biography was on TV recently, and very much the same kind of thing. You know, John Muir is going into the mountains and all that other stuff doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what Emerson found over and over again. He, he has one um, description that. You know, he, he and his friend go down to the river and one dip of the paddle into the river and, you know, it's a a joyous, instantaneous holiday. (laughs) That rich beauty. So as we allow ourselves to go into the experience, then we can put away all the little stuff that we've learned and discover how things really work. It is this balance of motion and rest. It is one substance that is always present everywhere. It is an incredible abundance. Every tree, you know, that gets, you know, has so many seeds over the course of its lifetime. What a great illustration of the abundance of the universe and the beauty can be found anywhere if we look at the natural world we realize you know we can go out in the backyard and experience great beauty just as easily as we can go anywhere in the world and live in a great villa or whatever and in fact he says that nature gives us everything that the rich are trying to create with all their money (laughs) so uh, to live a comfortable life and to understand these things then we realize that we don't have to try to be anything other than what we are just as the bear is the bear and the mountain is the mountain and has everything they need to be a bear or a mountain because who we are is a part of the natural natural process part of nature we have everything we need we can count on it And if we allow ourselves to be our true selves, if we allow ourselves to rely on what we know inside rather than what everyone's taught us and told us, then we can find all that we need and we can express that in work that is very satisfying. One of the things that he says that I love is he's saying we all have all of the laws of nature in us. Just to bend over and tie our shoes, we're understanding the principles of gravity, balance, harmony, reciprocation, friction, physiology, anatomy, (laughs) 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 and it goes on. It's just uh, wonderful to you know that he understands, and we can understand all of that. Just being who we are.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I love his um, description of the man who is truly wealthy as someone who can lie in the sun. Tell me what, what he considers to be the real purpose of wealth.
1: Ah. To experience more beauty and comfort and freedom from distressing interruptions. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And if that's all we want, then why should we get caught up in, you know, going out and working for the man, if you will? Uh Uh Uh, Because, you know, if, if we have comfort and we have beauty and we have that freedom from those distresses, then we are wealthy. You know, there's a lot of literature out today that says if, If you have what you want, if you want what you have, you have what you want, you are wealthy. It's the same kind of phrasing. Mm -hmm. But he's going a little further than that. He's saying, be aware of the wealth that is always present. And don't get caught up in what he calls the foolishness of the riches, riches, rich person, foolish riches. Mm -hmm. um, Because then you're actually not wealthy anymore. Because you're not enjoying the beauty, you're not enjoying the comfort, you're not freed from the distressing interruptions. So the other piece of it is I think that he's saying, if you are doing what is truly yours to do in the world, who you are, who you really are, then not only do you have you know, the beauty and the comfort and the freedom from the distress, but you also have this internal satisfaction that comes from the full expression of who you really are.
0: Mm. You know, there's so much to absorb. There's such a wealth of, of concepts that I found your summary of essential points really, really useful. And I loved your exercises uh, for applying the principles that were at the end of each chapter. Can you give us an example of an exercise we can do right now? Um, Either either the one to tune into nature or the one about the three E's. You get to pick.
1: (laughs) Oh, goody. (laughs) Um, the one from the tune into nature is so easy though, you know. Find something. Look out the window, look at the sky, you know, look at a tree, look at a plant, look at anything that is living, that is uh the, the natural world. You know, I grew up in a third floor apartment and when I was four years old they cut down the tree outside of my oh, window. No. So what had been my joyful, you know, thing to just lose myself in was gone. And so I discovered the incredible um, almost a journey that's possible just by looking at the sky. Because whatever we look at that is natural, we can see layers and layers and depths and depths. So if you look at uh, a plant or you look at the sky you begin to see through the surface, you see the harmony of the surface, you see the details of the surface, and then you realize behind the surface are these cells, and these cells are doing these processes. And these cells and processes are going on in the interaction of molecules. And the interaction of molecules is a function of interaction of atoms. And the atoms are functions of interactions of fields. And you go all the way into the the this, whatever you're looking at, and you end up in open space because Mm -hmm. you know those fields are fields in open space and you can do the same thing in the sky you look up at the sky and allow yourself to be aware you are looking hundreds of thousands of miles into the atmosphere, and even during the day, although it's hard to tell, you're looking millions of miles, you're looking light years beyond. Your line of sight is for light years with billions and billions of, if I can quote Carl Sagan, billions and billions (laughs) of possible life forms out there. So, you know, to just give ourselves a few moments to experience that almost is as effective as getting into the boat and dipping the paddle into the sunset-lit waters of the river Uh an instantaneous, glorious holiday.
0: I remember hearing a physics lecture um, that said that the distance between Earth and the stars was proportionately about the same as the distance between the electrons and the um, uh, nucleus of the atom.
1: Yeah, I like to use that one a lot. If you know, The first electron shell is somewhere around Pluto in the solar system, uh-huh. the sun where the nucleus... Yeah, the, the, the kind of space in the atom is you know, almost as overwhelming as it is in the world beyond us.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ruth, Emerson says that there is one perfect direction in which all doors open and we find ourselves in the flow. Now, I interviewed Dan Millman last week, who practically invented the term synchronicity, and yet here we have Emerson saying something very similar about 150 years ago. Now, how does does Emerson suggest that we invite the flow of abundance?
1: Oh, what a wonderful question. Yes there is one direction there is each of us is a unique piece of the totality you know there is no other energy like miriam knight in the whole of space and time forever (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty amazing so there is only one one combination of things that um, you can contribute, and if you contribute that, the whole universe rushes in to say, oh, goody, 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 goody. <laughs> She's doing her part, and now we can be whole. <laughs> okay? Now, if you had said, oh, no, I'm afraid to go there. I'm going to just do what my mother told me was the thing that I should do. <laughs> <laughs> then you're not doing that, which the universe... In Thought you were born to do, and so there isn't a whole lot of support there for you from the universe. So basically, he's saying that if we recognize our place in the totality. And we allow that inner sense of beingness to be our guide, and that gets us to the three E's. (laughs) Uh Then, um, then the universe—we're actually in our place in the universe. And just as the tree receives everything it needs to be, you know, reach maturity and put out its seeds and all of that, we receive everything we need to um, do what is ours to do. And the, the reason I mentioned the three E's is. There was a Stanford Business School um, study done back in the '80s. It was published in the early '90s um, by Michael Ray and Rochelle Myers and It was published as Creativity in Business. But what they did is they interviewed a bunch of entrepreneurs, you know successful entrepreneurs it was appropriate to do in Silicon Valley at those times and uh, they found there was a consistent pattern. These guys generally would not take on and do themselves; they might delegate. Uh, The things that were not energizing the things that were that took effort to get to do or the things that uh, They didn't find enjoyable and so they would only choose to do the things that were enjoyable They would choose to do the things that energized them. They would choose to do the things that didn't take effort to do so you know what I've come to do you know my own version of that is effectiveness equals these Mm -hmm. three E's you know and uh, you can call it E equals E cubed (laughs) (laughs) so if we look at it that way then if I am doing what is mine to do if I am being who I am the unique body of energy the unique pattern of information and energy that I am then what is mine to do will be effortless because I was born for it. It's my gifts. If It will be enjoyable because I get so much satisfaction from expressing my gifts. It will be energizing because I am moving with the universe and the universe is feeding me every step of the way. I know it's not mine to do when I've been drained by it. I go, oopsie, (laughs) that wasn't mine to do. Or when it's like, oh, I can't even imagine doing that. (laughs) And if for some reason to accomplish what it is that feels like mine to accomplish um requires that getting done then there must be someone in my circle because the universe always provides and when you're in that flow there must be someone in my circle who loves to do it my favorite example right now is bookkeeping most of us are not real happy about doing bookkeeping And I have a friend who wandered into one of the organizations I work with. It has a little library. She and her husband were checking out the library. And it turns out she loves bookkeeping. (laughs) She thinks it's a great thing to solve the problems and get those puzzles all worked out and get everything in exactly the right place. There is nothing more satisfying for her well, guess what I've done? <laughs> she handles my bookkeeping. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's always going to be the person who shows up and um, loves to do exactly the thing that needs to get done That, in order for you to do your three E's. Effortless, enjoyable, and energizing.
0: In fact, I just had an example of that, but we won't go into that. Tell me, um, I loved Emerson's uh, essay on the oversoul. How does he distinguish between the soul and the oversoul?
1: That can get a little confusing, especially if you read most of the printed versions of his essays, because most people didn't realize that there was a reason some words were capitalized and some words weren't. When he capitalizes the word S, he's referring to, in the letter S in the word soul, he's referring to the over soul, the large soul, the great soul of which we are all a part. When he uses a small S for the word soul, he's talking about uh, what Thomas More talks about in Care of the Soul. The combination of emotional and mental and physical experiences that defines who we feel ourselves to be which is a part of the great soul, the oversoul, but is not uh, the totality of it by a large, by any sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what he's attempting to help us to understand is that um, in the words of the folks in Science of Mind, there is one mind. In fact, in the history uh, essay he says, there is one mind common to all humanity and everyone is the inlet and outlet of the same. There's one mind, there is one beingness, there is one essence of all that is. And the word essence means beingness. So, the one essence of all that is. And he calls it, in that essay, the oversoul of which we are a part. And, you know, he talks about being this incredibly loving, accepting, supportive um, wisdom, intelligence that's enfolding us and embracing us and flowing through us and as us.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, of course, um, it's not all uh, wine and roses because uh, Emerson does talk about the law of compensation,
1: Uh, which
0: (laughs) which is essentially that you get back what you give. How do we apply that to modern life?
1: You know, I think people are rediscovering this principle in a, whole, in, in a way that is far more effective than it was when um, most of us were growing up. Um, we were taught about karma. We were taught that if you do something, you're going to be stuck with the consequences. Or if you were before the Eastern tradition started coming into America, we were taught that um, you will you will receive what you give out but you may or may not receive it in the immediate future you may or may not ever see the result of it in your lifetime you may only see it in heaven if you were raised in the christian or jewish tradition and what emerson is proposing and actually makes it very clear he's very upset with the idea that we would only see it in heaven he says no every action is contains the seed you know every fruit contains a seed, so every action contains the seed of its consequence in the action. Mm-hmm. So whatever you are doing, you have already created the consequence. <laughs> it's part of it. You can't separate it. And he helps people understand that uh, with the metaphor of the magnet. you know one end is, you know would repel another magnet, and another end would attract another magnet. But there's no point at which one starts and the other begins. Mm-hmm. you can't have one end without the other he even says you know you rub a needle one end of a needle on a magnet and magnetize that end of the needle the other end automatically is magnetized mm-hmm. you can't not magnetize it so it's the same thing you can't not have immediate consequences of the action now depending on um, the complexity of the system you're operating the society the complexity of your own uh, uh, life you may not see those immediate consequences you know immediately you may see them playing out over time and he says sometimes people see it years later and they call it bad fortune or bad luck or good fortune you know but he's saying no that's all your own actions
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's uncomfortable to take responsibility for our own actions, isn't it or f- certainly for the consequences
1: right um, and yet and yet he does point out that we're not we can always undo you know we can always go back in our awareness and um, you know go into that space of the oversoul, step outside of space and time and then start functioning in in this flow again.
0: Mm-hmm. well this was would be a good place to talk about the shadow w- What were his views on the shadow side
1: uh, yeah <sighs> you know isn 't that interesting because Jung didn't even create the term the shadow <laughs> for another what sixty eighty years mm-hmm. after that, but he's you know helping us to see that there's all kinds of um, Events and so on that that we have thought you know the the apparent loss we you know we experience this great pain, we experience this great distress, we experience this um, uh, thinking this feeling that all is awful, and yet even in that experience, there is a blessing, you know, so the shadow what we consider the shadow is really only, as I say, the other end of the magnet. Mm-hmm. You know? So if you can find and realize that it's not the totality of the experience, you know, then you can mm-hmm. begin to undo the the experience, you know, the, the effects of the experience. Do
0: you have a simple exercise that uh, we can do to understand the law of compensation?
1: Yeah, my favorite one is to just remember something you did really nicely for someone and you you were planning it and you were thinking about it and you you had all these ideas and you you went and you got whatever it was and and then you got to see their their reaction when you did it for them and they you know they just loved it and and then you got to feel the satisfaction of all that and you get to think about Now, who really got the most out of that experience? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so simple, so simple. Um, Yeah, there are many times in our lives where we have uh, just done a little something, gone out of our way a little way, and had a huge result. In fact, someone just sent me an email. It's actually a variation on an old country song. Uh, A woman's, uh, an old woman in a car on the road has a flat tire and, you know, this guy is on his way home from work and he's exhausted, but he goes ahead and changes the tire anyway and won't take any money because, of course, you do this for people, right? Right. So she goes on and she's just so flustered and, and tired that she pulls in the next restaurant, she orders a meal, the waitress is just sweet and really helps her, and she gives her a huge tip, you know, like hundreds of dollars, and leaves before the waitress can respond to that and uh, the waitress is pregnant she goes home she crawls into bed where her hu- husband is sleeping and it turns out that her husband is the guy who changed the flat tire oh. it's yeah it's a great story and i'm glad it's coming around again you know uh-huh yeah yeah every everything we do has you know we get it
0: <laughs> don't we ever Emerson was a firm believer in the importance of character and Mm self-reliance. I'd like you to expand on that.
1: Well, you know, most of us were taught that Emerson's essays were promoting rugged individualism, you know, and stand on your own two feet and all that good stuff. And frankly, that's not what he was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So somewhere, again, I think it had to do with that capital S thing. Um, If an editor didn't realize there was a reason for a capital S and dropped it, Uh, people didn't get to understand that. He was talking about uh, something that actually Wayne Dyer talks about as the sacred self versus the small self. He was saying that each of us is accustomed to living from a small self but and our normal thought processes are that but who we really are is this greater self that is an expression of and a part of the over soul and if we can allow ourselves to begin allow our normal thought processes to begin to rely on that greater self we will have a wisdom and have an understanding that is far beyond anything that anyone can teach us you know he really didn't think school was all that useful even though he ran a school I mean that's how he supported himself for what 10 years of his life um, and encouraged people by the way encouraged you know if that was what people felt like doing go ahead and do that set up a school <laughs> run it for a while um But he still didn't think that that was really where the best lessons and the best learnings happened. The best learnings happen when we follow our inclination, when we follow our gifts, and we listen inside. So he encouraged in self-reliance us to be reliant on that greater self, the sacred self, the soul, the over-soul within us and flowing through us. His thought was in alignment with everything else I've said. When we do that, we give up trying to conform. We give up trying to be consistent. You know, He's the one who said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Mm-hmm. Um, we give up trying to do it the way we were taught. We give up all that stuff, and we discover a deeper knowing. We act from that knowing, and in that action... Not only we are benefited, but all beings are benefited because we're part of that whole. When we don't act in alignment with that inner knowing, those consequences that we just talked about in compensation may be very uncomfortable for many. But when we act from that deeper place, then everyone benefits.
0: Mm. It's very much along the lines of of his... um views on established religion and politics and society. I mean, it sounds like they're as relevant today as they were 150 years ago. He had an almost cynical view.
1: Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he, he always just went to the edge of protesting, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he he really didn't think much of social norms, and he thought that, most of politics was a waste of people's efforts. You know, he was a full believer and lived um, the sustainable household, the household economy. You, you know, you do as much as you can in the household so that the uh, community can benefit from your sustainable, you know, local household economy. The then the community can contribute because it's healthy, and its economics are healthy, it can contribute to a larger economy. And then the politics become much simpler when people are living from that higher place and that deeper knowing. He didn't talk much about it, but there's a concept that um, David Bohm introduced into modern uh, conversation called dialogue. And I like to think of it as the equivalent of a Native American council fire, Mm -hmm. where each person listens from the heart, goes inside, and then speaks from the heart. And when that happens, arguments almost never happen, all kinds of wonderful new things emerge, um, new insights, new awarenesses, and new possibilities and he would have loved to have seen people come together in that way if each person coming into a room was relying on that higher self that greater self and speaking from that heart place then what we call politics wouldn't exist but community would be very very functional
0: yeah, I, it's interesting that some of his followers actually started a kind of a commune but but it fizzled.
1: Mhm. And I think the reason it fizzled is because we are already programmed in societal norms. And, you know, if if you can get kids, <laughs> I think that was part of why Summerhill was so popular and so effective when when children grow up sharing and and speaking from the heart amazing things can happen there's a, a community in um, east germany that doesn't have the puritan christian overlay that's it's called z e g g um, and in that's the german acronym for um, the new community and they have created processes where people learn to be in the heart and you know, move through their stuff together, and this is very actually very Quaker in its process. I think the Quakers may be the closest possible uh, model that we have—the traditional meeting of the Society of Friends—that includes um, processes of of dealing with apparent conflict by getting to the point where there is no more conflict by simply going inside and finding the resolution. And keeping coming you know, keeping at it over and over again, mm-hmm. but yeah, he had very, very little patience with societal norms, the doctrine and the teachings of the churches. You know he had he was trained as a minister, he was supposed to be a Unitarian minister. They kicked him out because he said, "Wait a minute, Jesus isn't a god <laughs> you know Jesus is is you know the 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 one who shows us the way He described himself as an elder brother. He would not like it if we were doing this and they said <laughs> and they said, "Well, we think you better go home and think about whether you really want to be a minister." <laughs> and so all of this work was an attempt to reach the world and and uplift them without the doctrine of church. All these essays, all those lectures. He did over 1,500 lectures in his life. Yeah. Amazing.
0: So, you know, I, I know when I've... Sometimes when I'm, I'm in a big project, it really... Uh, um, it changes you uh, when you get so immersed in a play or in an author... Has has all of this work with Emerson changed you, changed your life?
1: It's taken everything to a new level and, you know, opened up doors and and, and filled in holes and all that wonderful stuff. Um, you know, I, I chose to do this project because I knew that his teachings were fundamental to my work as a new thought minister. And um, because he also bridged outside of the church, uh, with some of my, my work as a consultant to nonprofits and and a teacher. And so what I was, um, I wasn't anticipating a whole lot of breakthroughs. There were moments when it was, oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know not a whole lot of new ideas, but just to see, oh my goodness, yes, he got it, and he got it then, and now we can get it, yay <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my, do you have a favorite passage you'd like to read?
1: Mm. well, you know his opening paragraph in his nature essay has a beauty to it that most of us can't get. So I ended up taking it and simplifying it. So I, it's not the opening pa- pa- paragraph to my essay on nature's riches, beauty as in laws because we wanted to uh, tie it directly to the prosperity. But it's about the fourth paragraph in that section and people like it when I read it. So I would enjoy reading it if you don't mind.
0: Yes, please.
1: All right. in my version of his words, Everywhere there are days when the world reaches its perfection. It may happen in any season of the year when the air, the sun and clouds, and the earth form a wonderful harmony. Everything that has life seems satisfied. Even the cattle resting on the ground seem to have peaceful thoughts. And solitary places don't seem lonely. On such a day, at the edge of the forest, we remember ancient tales of forest magic and the silent trees invite us to come live with them and leave our life of self-important trifles. On such a day, we could walk into the opening landscape and let each new vista each new discovery fill our minds until all memory of home and work is crowded out by the fullness of the present moment. These enchanted moments, available to all, are like medicine. They cleanse and heal us.
0: Wow. You almost don't want to break the spell of the moment. Mm. Thank you very much for that, Ruth. Oh, so, Ruth, I understand you have a workshop coming up um, that kind of uh, talks about the 2012 prophecies, but uh, you also incorporate some Emerson and your other books.
1: Teachers, <laughs> <right? laughs> yeah. tell us um, about it. In the Portland area on May 7th, we're going to be at the uh, Washington Square Embassy Suites Hotel. Uh, it's 10 to 3, and what we're going to be doing, it's called Beyond 2012, you know, how do we get beyond the fears and all of this about what people are trying to convince us 2012 is about, and move into a thriving new kind of economy that are based on the principles that Emerson is teaching. So uh, what kind of society, what kind of economy, what kind of political system would we have in place if we knew this was not the end of planet Earth, but was the ending of a way of life and then an opening into a new one? And I'm drawing on the Mayan prophecies, I'm drawing on many indigenous prophecies, as well as the computer forecasts. I was a futurist for years. And um, all the things that I can draw on to help us see what's really happening over this period of time that we're calling 2012. And then drawing on the materials of Emerson and some other folks to help us explore what it is that we might be experiencing on the other side if we start setting the intentions at this point. The goal with the event is that people will have some information to work with. They'll have a chance to network with folks who are thinking similar thoughts. They'll have a chance to get beyond whatever the fears have been. And we're actually going to have some folks there uh, who are going to be able to provide ongoing support after the event because i know these one-day events you know (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fine now what right so we're going to have some networking opportunities and then a chance to get together with leaders in different topic areas so people can get some support and we're also going to have a musician laura perkins who's a remarkable remarkable singer musician will be joining us to facilitate and you know entertain during the course of the day so it's a very full day
0: well i hope you're going to record it and have it available somewhere
1: (laughs) well um we may be able to do that i suppose the thing to do is to get someone in there with a video camera because it's going to be as much visual as verbal
0: Mm -hmm. half flip will travel you got it (laughs) Oh, wow. so Ruth, where do people go to find out more about this and your other activities, your many other activities?
1: <laughs> well, there's, uh, there's a website for the book, Natural naturalabundancethebook.com. Uh, so www.naturalabundancethebook.com, and it will point you to everybody. Or you can go to my own personal website, which is rlmiller.com phd.com, and i have my speaking schedule on there and flyers for the various events i'll be talking about the natural abundance book in grants pass this saturday um, at the portal center in grants pass information is on the website and again in brookings the following saturday
0: uh give and, us the dates ruth
1: okay this saturday is april 23rd And um, in Grants Pass. (laughs) 2011. Thank you, dear. April 23rd, 2011, in Grants Pass, Oregon. And then April 30th, 2011, in Brookings, Oregon, at the Masonic Lodge there. And then May 7th, this uh, major workshop, Beyond 2012, where we look at Make the World Go Away and Natural Abundance and a couple of other uh, resources in um, a multimedia event with music at the Embassy Suites, May 30th, 2011, the Embassy Suites, Washington Square, uh, outside of Portland, Oregon.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ruth. Uh, it, it's been a total delight.
1: It's always a delight, Miriam. <laughs> I Thank love you. working with you.
0: <laughs> we have been speaking with Dr. Ruth Miller about her new book, Natural Abundance, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Guide to Prosperity, published by Beyond Words and Atria. And Ruth's website, again, is rlmiller.com. I'm Miriam Knight, and I hope you'll visit our website at ncreview.com. Join us next week when our guest will be Michael Cremo, the Forbidden Archaeologist. Until then, I'll leave you with two quotes from Albert Einstein that echo the spirit of Emerson. One task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. And the other quote? There are two ways to live. You can live as if nothing is a miracle. You can live as if everything is a miracle. Goodbye and God bless.